Welcome to Theology for the People. This is Nick Cady. I am joined today by Pastor Jason Crawley. Hey, Jason. Hey, how's it going today? Thank you for having me on your show. Hey, thanks for being on here. We've talked about doing this for a while. So, Jason, what we're doing today on the podcast is an Ask Me Anything episode. This is AMA number one. I hope there will be more of these, actually. You know, for years, I hosted a call-in radio show, and that's that's what this was. It was Ask Me Anything stuff, never scripted, no preparation for it. Although, you know, after a while, you do start to hear some similar questions over time. But I thought, you know, let's bring that to the podcast. I know, you know, our listenership has grown a lot, and we recently also did a conference in which we did an Ask Me Anything type thing with a panel. Not all those questions got answered. And so we have this backlog of questions. Additionally, I have a form on my website, nickkady.org, where people can ask questions, and I regularly get questions over there. So what we're going to do today is look at a mix of questions from my website, questions people have asked me personally, and questions that have been submitted at the recent conference that we did that didn't get answered. So, All right. Sounds exciting. Yeah. So, Jason, our listeners don't know you, so... Maybe just introduce yourself and how do we even know each other? What's your background? Why are you on a <laughs> podcast called Theology for the People? Are you even qualified for this? How do I know? Probably not. <laughs> but that's no, I'm the executive pastor here at Whitefields Community Church. And I have my undergrad in biblical studies from Moody. And I have my master's of divinity from Denver Seminary. So with an emphasis in biblical preaching, which I'm still learning. Yeah, that's great. So, you know, I like to, especially, you know, I have lots of different people on the podcast, but I try to really focus the podcast on the title of the podcast, right? This is Theology for the People, which means what we want to do is we want to take theological concepts and we want to help people understand that they are accessible and that they're relevant to today. So I think the Ask Me Anything really gets to that, which is people are asking theological questions. And many of these have practical implications for their lives. And our goal is to help give them some answers so they can live faithfully and think biblically in the days that we live in today. So let's start with our first question. We are recording this in the month of June. And June in the United States is now Pride Month, which has become an increasingly big deal over the last few years. So one, right. one listener reached out to the podcast and said, hey, my question is, how do we as Christians live faithfully and respond to Pride Month? Because the Bible says that pride is a sin, and yet here we have this, this month-long you know, holiday, if you will, that is you know, right in your face. It's at retailers, it's in companies. How do we live faithfully? How do we deal with this issue of pride? Especially when we as Christians believe that pride is a sin. And good question. Yeah. So I'll just start out by saying this. You know, I think that just because our outside culture tells us that we have to do something doesn't mean that we have to do it. I think that's actually part of what it means to be a Christian is that we are part of a different kingdom. Though we are citizens of earthly countries, we are first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of heaven, right? We talk about this in Philippians chapter 3, where Paul is writing to the Philippians who uniquely amongst people within the Roman Empire 
Philippi was a Roman colony, which made it different than many other places in Rome or in the Roman Empire, in that the citizens of Philippi had the same rights as the citizens of the city of Rome. What that meant, not everybody who lived in the Roman Empire was a Roman citizen. Citizenship was something that could be purchased, it was something that could be earned or awarded. So they had this kind of prestige that they were a colony of Rome. And yet to them, Paul says, he reminds them, our citizenship is in heaven, and it's from there that we await a savior. In other words, not from Rome, not from Philippi, because remember the Roman Caesars, especially starting with Augustus, he referred to himself as the savior of the world. And so a lot of the language that we read in the New Testament is intentionally chosen, first of all, because theologically accurate, but there's an, a secondary part of it where some of the language that's used is intentionally meant to counteract the cult of the emperor. So, for example, whereas Augustus calls himself the savior of the world and the prince of peace, here we have Christians coming in and saying, no, 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 before Augustus ever was, we have hoped in the Messiah, who is the true savior of the world in a much greater way than Augustus could ever be. And he's the true bringer of peace, a peace which goes beyond all understanding and beyond any political stuff. And so all that to say, Paul is telling the the people of Philippi, hey, you may be a citizen of Philippi and you may be a citizen of Rome, but first and foremost, you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And it's from there that we await our Savior. And therefore, we, as part of this heavenly kingdom here, as citizens who live here on earth, we have a different priority. We answer to a different master. And we also have our own culture, right? We have a culture of the kingdom that has its own morality. It has its own values. And oftentimes, those are different and upside down compared to the values of the, the surrounding culture that we find ourselves in. And what's interesting is that this culture of the kingdom, it is found wherever the kingdom goes. So if you're a Christian in the Dominican Republic, if you're a Christian in Peru, if you're a Christian in Nairobi, Kenya, or in Moscow, Russia, you're going to be having the same culture taught to you from the scriptures. So I say all that to say this, just because popular culture in the United States is telling us that this is the month when we are to affirm LGBTQ practice and identity. That doesn't mean that we as Christians need to go along with that. In fact, I think that's, that's part of it as Christians that we, we can say, no, 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 we, we don't do that. We view pride as a sin. In fact, it's the sin which caused Lucifer, the angel of light, to fall from heaven because in his pride, he aspired to dethrone God. And at its root, that is, that is what's at the core of every sin since then, is the desire to dethrone God as king and lord over your life and to ascend that place on your own that only rightly belongs to God. Anecdotally, I'll say this. I personally have viewed the Pride Month this year. I've noticed a few things online where it seems that some companies have actually dialed back from talking about it. And I, I think that's because of consumer pushback. And so I think that you have the right and the ability to choose where you will spend your money. And, you know, there was a thing recently about Target pushing certain designers who had ties even to Satan worship, but also making things for promoting transgenderism 
and sexual practices to children as young as toddlers. And there was huge pushback to this. Target removed a lot of that merchandise from many of their stores, and their stock prices fell. And in my opinion, a lot of this stuff that in the popular media about the Pride Month is really driven by is really driven by companies not because they necessarily believe it, but because they think it will help their bottom line. And here we have an example of it actually hurting their bottom line and them responding accordingly. So I think that you know you have a right to spend your money where you choose, and I I think that you can choose to exercise it that way. And last thing I'll say is this. We also shouldn't expect the surrounding culture to necessarily reflect our values. That's never really been the case as for us as Christians. In some places, some pockets, and some parts of time, the wider culture has reflected Christian values, and that can be a blessing. There are also special challenges that come with that. I just talked to some friends who moved back from Louisiana, which is you know, definitely in the Bible Belt, and they said, yeah, there are some unique challenges with living in a place where the culture reflects biblical values but they're not necessarily held by people truly in their hearts. So all that to say, we live increasingly in a culture that is reflecting Christian and biblical values less and less. That shouldn't surprise us. 2 Timothy chapter 3 talks about how we should live in these last days that we are in and you know, just not being surprised by these things, but continuing to stand and walk in the things that we have been taught from the Holy Scriptures. Jason? Any further thoughts? Yeah, that's such a good applicable question to today. I think that the, like you said, the basis of the answer has to lie in the fact that we are countercultural as Christians, that we have since Christ, we are swimming against the stream and the norms of, of Christianity aren't, aren't set by society. Instead, they're set by Christ and his word. And so we really are different and we will continue to be different. And we have to understand that that's okay. That's okay that we're going to be completely different from society. And that may mean that we are going to be rejected by society. We're going to be persecuted by society for not celebrating Pride Month. But you know what? That the Bible says in Second Timothy that we will be persecuted if we follow Christ. Yeah, it's chapter 3. And he says, everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's a great book, and I've taught a class on it at our church, but I would recommend it to all our listeners. It's called Christ and Culture by Richard Niebuhr, not to be confused with Reinhold Niebuhr, who's also a theologian, two different guys. This is Richard Niebuhr, written in the 1950s, Christ and Culture. He gives five models of ways that Christians have engaged with culture historically. And, and he says that two of them, he views the two extremes as being unbiblical, but there's three in the middle. And he calls those Christ and culture in paradox, Christ transformer of culture, and there's one more, not remembering it right now, but, but basically, yeah, he would say having a view where we are against culture can lead to some interesting and perhaps unbiblical concepts and and ideas, but I I get what you're saying. You're saying that we, by nature, are countercultural. And I think that a great way of showing that is exactly what you said with, you know, you can vote with your dollars, basically. You know, if if a company has gone and, you know, started selling things that you don't approve of, you know, you can 
purchase from them or not purchase from them. It's your choice. So, All right, here's the next question. This one's a little more theological and hypothetical in nature. Someone recently asked, in the Garden of Eden, if Adam and Eve did not have a sin nature and they were given the choice to trust God or not trust God and they chose to not trust God and to disobey, then will it be possible in the new heavens and the new earth for us to have the same exact thing happen all over again? Yeah, that's a really good question. That It does seem that, you know, they were given the choice to be able to sin or to not be able to sin at the beginning or the dawn of time. They had a choice, just like Lucifer was, a, was an angel and he had the choice whether he was going to serve God or not. He chose incorrectly. Adam and Eve also chose incorrectly. And so they had the nature that could be able to sin at the time. Yeah. So here, here's what I'm thinking on this, that what we see with the new heavens and the new earth is in many ways a reuniting of what was lost in Eden. So for example, you see the tree of life in the new heavens and the new earth, just as we were separated from the tree of life after having sinned in Eden. So in Eden, there were many trees which could be eaten from, and in the center of the garden, we're told that there was a tree of life, and then there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so when they ate from that, they developed what we would call an experiential knowledge of good and evil, as opposed to a theoretical one. And so what we have is this long journey from the Bible where we are cut off from Eden, this garden paradise, but in the end, we see the new heaven and new earth descending from the heavens. And it says that there in the midst of the new city, Jerusalem, there is once again the tree of life and its leaves are for the healing of the nations. So we're reunited with the tree of life. So we eat of it and live forever. But I, I think it's important to point out that there is no mention of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil being in the new heavens and the new earth. And then furthermore, I would say this, what we see in the end of the Bible is not just a fresh start, like bringing us back to where we were in Eden, but it is the culmination. So it's not just a reset. It's a culmination of what Eden would have been if we hadn't fallen into sin. So for example, in Genesis, we see that Eden is a garden, which they're told to cultivate and to fill. Whereas in Revelation, we see that now this new Jerusalem is a city, a garden city, and there's the tree of life. So I guess my answer would be this, that what we see in heaven is actually different than what we see in Eden. It's not just a reset, it's a culmination. And I agree with you, Jason, whereas we had the ability to sin, I, I'm of the conviction that we will not even have the ability to sin. Now, prior to the new heavens and the new earth, that last part there in Revelation 20, where it says that at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ, Satan will be released in order to tempt the nations, and there will be a great rebellion. So clearly at that time, there's still a choice to rebel. But after that is done and the final judgment takes place, after which the new heavens and new earth descend, it seems that there will not even be the opportunity for sin. Yeah, that seems logical to me. It seems like that's what the Bible is talking about. We will be right back after these messages from our sponsors. 
Hi friends, Brian Broderson here, and I want to let you know about the CGN International Pastors and Leaders Conference coming up here at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, June 25th through the 28th. Our theme this year is the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And oh, how we need the Spirit of God uh, to be upon us in these days. So we're going to be digging down into that great text from Isaiah 61. We're going to be looking at all the different facets of it. we got a number of great voices that are going to be speaking to us. We're going to have times of prayer and worship and lots of fellowship and enjoying meals together and all kinds of wonderful things. So if you would like to be part of this conference coming up in June, uh, please get signed up today. You can do that at conference.calvarychapel.com. Once again, that is the CGN International Pastors and Leaders Conference, June 25th through the 28th. Hope to see you there. Next question. How do you continue to be a good worker and avoid gossip when you're dissatisfied with your job? Jason, (laughs) did did you? Let me tell you. you, Did you send in that question? I I would rather plead the fifth. (laughs) All right. So what do you say to this person? How do you continue to be a good worker and avoid gossip when you're dissatisfied with your job? Yeah, I have had a few jobs where I have just been definitely not satisfied. I don't want to be there. And here's how I handled it. I handled it as, you know, my life is outside of this job. My happiness may not be inside of this job, but Christ is in me. The love of Christ, the light of the Lord is is shining out of me, even though I'm in this environment. I don't want to be there. My happiness is outside this job. And so I always looked at it as a mission field. This I am here to be on a mission for Christ. And my happiness is going to be found in that, where I can share Christ. I can show people what Christians are, who they are, what they do. And that gave me happiness. Instead of concentrating on my job and that providing the happiness, because it just didn't, my happiness was found that I could share the love of Jesus with people. Sometimes it wasn't verbally. Sometimes it was my actions, because they wouldn't listen. So... I think even just the assumption that, you know, our job will always be something that we find a lot of satisfaction in. I I just think, number one, that's not tenable for every person in the world. I always tell this to my kids, you know, if if I offer them a job that they're going to get paid for or a neighbor offers them a job and they're like, oh, that, that, I don't want to do that. I'm like, well, listen, if people wanted to do things, we wouldn't have to pay them to do them, right? Like (laughs) that's kind of the nature of work. And, and yet, I think that there can be some satisfaction in doing a job and doing it well, even if you don't love the job, you know, it's completing true. it, it's true. being faithful. There's a satisfaction in being faithful, being able to say, I showed up, I did what I was asked to do, I got paid, I put food on my table for my family. And I think there's another sense, though, yeah, this idea of satisfaction in your work I think that is a particularly modern and Western obsession. And if you think about it, Definitely. we farm out so much work abroad that we don't want to do. Um, and so a lot of jobs don't even exist in the West just because we farmed them out to other countries because people don't enjoy doing them. So I think that you know this idea that we have to be satisfied with what we do, I think it's a good thing to be satisfied. I think it's ideal and you can pursue that. There's nothing wrong with it. 
On the other hand, there is also some level of saying with my job, this job I have is my way that I can serve God and serve others. And you know what? Sometimes serving people isn't joyful in the moment. You know, Jesus washing the feet of his disciples was probably pretty gross and unenjoyable in the moment. You know, if you zoom in and get granular, it's gross and unenjoyable. If you zoom out and look at the big picture, it's beautiful and awesome. And oftentimes that's how it is, right? In our families, in our workplaces, Mm -hmm. when you get granular, it's not really that great. But when you zoom out, those not great things can also be beautiful and wonderful, delightful. So, so like Jesus dying on the cross, yet yeah, zoom in granularly, it's awful, terrible. Zoom out in big picture, that's the most beautiful thing that has ever taken yeah. place. And I think that that's a yeah. good way to look at it. I mean, like sometimes it just requires zooming out and saying, yes, I'm not enjoying what I'm doing right now, but I understand that what I'm doing in the big picture is beautiful because I'm serving my family. I'm doing what God put before me. I'm being faithful. So maybe ha- having some of that perspective might be helpful. Yeah, I really think that, well, another thing that really helped me was Colossians 3.23. So really when I'm focusing on what I'm doing and who I'm doing it for, I'm doing this job I just don't like, and I'm doing it for the Lord, and he is pleased when I do the best that I can for him. And so sometimes I remember one job I was sweeping out a lumber yard in a hundred some odd degree weather, and it took me two weeks to get from one side to another, and every day I'd come home and I would think, you know what, I'm doing this for the Lord. I'm not doing this for a boss. I'm not doing this so this place looks clean. I'm doing it because the Lord has called me here. So... All right, this one is from an older person. They ask this, as you enter a relationship in your golden years as a widower, how can you have new relationships and not make mistakes without marrying? I do not want to live in sin. This is a very pastoral question, Jason. Why don't you go ahead and answer that one? Well, it's it seems he doesn't want to live in sin, so it sounds like he shouldn't be living with the individual. Well, I don't, I don't want to make any assumptions because I don't know anything about this person. But yeah, I mean, what, what are some principles that, I mean, would you say that it, there is any difference of principle as the person gets older or are they just the same principles? I'd say they're definitely the same principle, whether you're, you know, 20 years old or whether you're 70 years old, the same biblical principles rely in marriage as in, in singleness, I would say, when, when you're, when you are, dedicated to following Christ in his ways. I, I think it's the same in marriage. The, the idea of sacrificing yourself as Christ did for the church, for your bride, I think is foundational. Serving one another, whether you are 100 or whether you're 20. Yeah, and I think being faithful to the Lord, I agree with you. I don't think that these you know biblical prescriptions are given only to 20-year-olds or 40-year-olds. I think they're given to all people at all times, and they're God's wisdom, which is for our good. But also, they respect and regard His holiness and righteousness. And so we want to, in, mm, in reverence good. to the Lord, honor Him by doing what He says. That's what it means that He is our Lord. And Jesus said, you know, yeah. this is what it means to love me, is to obey my commands. So I would say, I don't actually think that one's too complicated. I think it's the same biblical principles 
Yeah. Yeah. It, and it's the same biblical principles, whether you've been married for a year or whether you've been married for 50, you know, it doesn't change. Right. Okay. Here's another one. What advice do you have for a man who is married to a woman who is an unbeliever or who is not passionate about her faith? Yeah, that's, that's, it's a difficult situation, but it's a very common situation in today's world, unfortunately. And I've talked to many people who are in this situation and, you know, the Bible doesn't call for divorce in that situation. And so what do you do? How do you stay there? And it's, it comes down to, you're a witness to that unbelieving individual that's living in your house. You're showing them the love of Christ. You're showing them Jesus and everything that you do and all the kind acts and all the love. And you don't know what the future holds. So keep at it. Yeah. And I agree. I would say, yeah, the witness thing is really huge, right? You get, they get to experience what a Christian is like up close every day. Um, which means mm -hmm. they get to see the blemishes, but they also get to see yes. the beauty. They get to see the beauty yeah. of what a Christian is and what a Christian does. And so more than anybody else, you get to be cognizant of the fact that you are living out your faith in front of somebody who is not necessarily inclined to think positively or to give you the benefit of the doubt in regard to your faith. And I, I think that that's good. You know, I think that's good and healthy for us. So, Yeah. And, and then I think it also requires, you know, if you're not going to be getting good fellowship from that person, that it requires you to have a good, strong community of believers in your church mm, yeah. where you can Absolutely. be encouraged, where you can get good godly counsel. But I would warn against seeking that counsel and that fellowship from another individual of the opposite sex. Because what can easily happen is some kind of like, essentially like an emotional affair that begins with, you know, spiritual things. Oh, well, this person's so spiritual. They've got such great advice. They're such a good friend. And that can go south really fast. And that would result in a bad witness as opposed to a good one. So, you know, that's where we do have like gendered groups at our church, right? Specifically like men's fellowships, women's fellowships, community groups, be wise. In, in building relationships with other believers because you need them for support, but make sure that you are choosing wisely where you find those. All right, how about this one? Is forgiveness given only when there is repentance? And does forgiveness mean something that you're willing to forgive before repentance is expressed? Will we not only be feeding sin by giving grace to a person who is unrepentant or even rebellious. And I will say, I do not believe that forgiveness on the part of the forgiver depends on repentance on the part of the offender. I think that you can forgive and you are called to forgive regardless of what the other person does or does not do. It is a posture of your heart it is an attitude in which you are no longer holding something over their head. It is a way, I love this idea, that in order for forgiveness to take place, sin has to be absorbed. And it is the person who forgives who is saying, I am going to absorb that sin and I won't try to punish you for it, but I will absorb that offense. That's a very painful thing to do. We can see that in Christ where he's dying on the cross. It's a very painful experience. 
And I think that we experience some of that in our own lives whenever we forgive someone. There's a sense of absorbing, there's a sense of pain that goes with it, a sense even of dying to self that goes along with it. But I do not think that it is feeding a sin by giving grace to a person who is unrepentant or even rebellious. Now, it would be feeding that if you were to tell that person that it's not a problem, that it's no big deal. Like, you can still forgive somebody and tell someone that what they did was wrong and that they need to repent of it and they need to apologize or they need to change, whatever that is. I, again, I think that repentance or forgiveness is something that takes place in your heart before God. It's a posture, and it's something that you do for the other person, whether they want it or not. You know, I love this phrase. I've used it a lot, but it's the idea that unforgiveness, like refusing to forgive someone, is kind of like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. The only person you hurt is yourself. I love that. And Jesus, yeah. Jesus said that if you do not forgive those who sin against you, your Heavenly Father will not forgive you. Now, if that required every person to repent in order to be forgiven, well, then we'd all be in a lot of trouble because not everybody is going to repent. Not everybody's going to apologize. And if our forgiving them depended on that, then we would be in trouble because we couldn't forgive people unless they repented. And therefore, we would be living in unforgiveness, which would then mean that God is not going to forgive us. So clearly, based even just on that, we can say the answer is we can forgive even if the other person is not apologetic or repentant. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with that, that as believers, our forgiveness is dependent on Christ. We forgive because Christ first forgave us. And so, you know, and it does hurt when you're forgiving somebody who has harmed you and they are absolutely unrepentant. They they just revel in that they hurt you, that, that idea. And so, you know, but we have to take that in, as you said. Sometimes we have to mourn the idea that we have been hurt and we have to accept that. And then we offer forgiveness. And even though the other person doesn't even care to accept it, but that's okay because we are forgiving because Christ is forgiving. And so it's based on Christ, not on what the other person is doing. All right, Jason, I've got to ask you anything question. Who are some of your favorite theologians of any time in church history? Oh, man. I got to say, Martin Luther is probably one of my big ones. But then nowadays, I'd go with like C.S. Lewis and John Stott, just great authors that I, I really like. That's great. I'm going to go with Augustine, Luther. Oh, and, Augustine, uh, yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm in agreement. John Stott, yeah. All right, Jason, here's your opportunity. Ask me anything. Ready? Go. Ask you yeah, anything? What do you What do you think about the uh, the chances the 49ers will win the Super Bowl this year? Yeah, I think they're not very good. Uh, Curse you. No. <laughs> I know. So, Jason, you showed up one day, I think it was right after Christmas, with a 49ers helmet yeah. in your office. That's right. I asked, oh, did you get that from a, what did I say, from a... From a secondhand yeah, store? Yeah, secondhand store. Did you find that? Is it sitting next to someone's trash can? What happened there? But apparently it was a Christmas gift, so sorry for offending you, but more like kind of hashtag sorry, not sorry. Yeah, yeah, I get it. I'm in the wrong country. I'm in, I'm in the Bronco country That's right. here. Yeah, yeah. But at least I hope <laughs> so. you're a Nuggets fan. I uh, Yeah, I'm hoping that they win. Yeah. Actually, my second, I'm rooting for the home team when I'm not rooting for the Niners, so. 
How do you feel about Russell Wilson? Do you think he's going to turn it around this year? Here's the problem. I am from Seattle country, Seattle Seahawks country, and I never liked Russell Wilson as a player, as a person, you know, that's different, but as a player. And so finally he comes down to Bronco country. I can root for him. I root for him. And this is what happens. Mm. So it's a, it's a lesson to be learned. You know, I stopped watching football over the last several years. I used to be a really big fan, watch every minute of every game. But since the Broncos have been so bad, I have instead (laughs) just been going out with my kids and like riding bikes because I don't want to be anywhere near a TV. And I got to say, it has been a real experience of redeeming the time. And maybe I don't need to watch the Broncos at all anymore. I don't know. Don't, don't let my wife listen to this, that comment. Okay. I remember those some years we, you know, but a few years back, we were pretty miserable. Yeah. And I still watched every single game. And, and then there was weeping and gnashing of teeth afterwards. Okay. Well, Jason, I appreciate you being on the show. One of my favorite things about you is that... You make fun of me in spite of the fact that I'm injured, which is something I respect. <laughs> I like it that you told me to break a leg when I was going to preach. That's right. Yeah. Get up there and break a leg, Nick. Yep. All right. Well, Jason, thanks for being on the show, and thanks, everyone, for listening. If you have more questions, you want to ask anything, you can fill out the form on my website. That's nickkady.org, and there is one that says, ask a question, suggest a topic, And you can go there and just, I would love it if you'd bombard me with questions. I think on Spotify also, you can also submit questions. And so my plan would be that we would do this multiple times with the Ask Me Anything. So give me your theological questions, your practical Christian living questions, and we'll answer them in upcoming episodes. 